gospel. We're going to try something strange today. Over the most recent weeks, we've gone through about a verse a day uh, because of its depth and girth. But we have to go through this whole section if we're going to see it in its clarity. Because it really is kind of key to not lose the forest in the trees. So take a look at it with me. For the sake of context, we will start at verse 17, but really, it kind of, really kind of jumps in at verse 20. But go ahead and take a look at it with me, if you would, please. Uh, Matthew chapter 5. That's it. You've been gone for a couple of weeks, you come back and you're like, we're, my goodness, we're still in the same chapter. And I'd say, welcome to Shoreline Calvary Chapel, baby. All right. (coughs) (coughs) Sorry. Here we go. Matthew chapter 5, if we call it part 5, the rightest kind of righteousness, being perfect. Verse 17 says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but fulfill For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men, so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. By the way, that's Exodus 20, verse 13 and Deuteronomy 5, 17. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka. Now, any of you actually look at your brother and say, Raka? Probably not, right? So you feel good about that. Shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on your way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you that you will by no means get out of there until you've paid the last penny. If you heard it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. That's Exodus 20, verse 14, Deuteronomy 5, 18. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her, uh, give her a certificate of divorce. Deuteronomy 24.1 But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who was divorced commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but perform your oaths to the Lord. Exodus 20, verse 7, Leviticus 19, 12, New Numbers 30, verse 2, and Deuteronomy 5, 11. And it says, But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, 
Because you cannot make one hair white or black. Now, obviously, that was before some of your current things. But I could say today, no matter how much you like your hair, you still can't keep it on your head if it's going to fall out. (laughs) But let your yes be yes and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Exodus 21:24, Leviticus 24:2, and Deuteronomy 19:21. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn and offer him, the, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you. And from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Leviticus 19.18 for the first part. The second part you're not going to find in Scripture. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love... Only those who love you, well, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? I find that interesting because, you know, Matthew's writing this down and he was a tax collector. I think, ouch. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? What do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Pray with me, would you please? God, I pray you would be with my voice today. Lord, that you would be with our ears today. Be with our hearts and captivate us. Take every moment and engulf us in your goodness. God, I pray that your word would burst open and come alive. And that today in this room, we would be transformed. That we would today... Be overwhelmed with your goodness. That we would account, as you've called us to, for what you've called us to. That today, Lord, anyone who claims to know you will take that step. Continue the journey you've called us on. If there be any who have yet to know you as Lord and Savior, let today be the day of their salvation. We commit this time, oh God, speak to us individually where we need to hear you and corporately as a family. We commit this time to you and pray you would redeem every second. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible be your final say. Some of you can probably quote that verbatim. In life, it's pretty evident that two groups always seem to emerge, the popular and the outcasts. The first is identified by their accomplishments and their fan base. The second by their shortcomings. Well, that was nothing different than it was 2,000 years ago. The only problem was that the popular kids, if you were, were the religious leaders. Jesus speaks of them, and boy, are we going to get a lot of that when we actually get to Matthew 23. But our Heavenly Father sees through this visceral facade to a radically different internal state as he told in Samuel. Man looks at the outer appearance, but it's God who looks at the levav. Levav is the word 
or inside. So the first group, the popular, oozes a festering, self-reliant pride. Predisposed to violently defending its position and resisting anything that could associate them with the outcasts. But the second group, that outcast group, well, arises from that a poverty of spirit. A humble accepting of a Savior's hand. Accustomed to succumbing to limitations and therefore primed to surrendering to the everlasting immeasurable love of God. So when people say religion really is for the weak, actually, might I say, often only the weak are the only ones meek enough to honestly appraise their need for saving. And in doing so, reaching out their hand. It was the outcast backwoods fishermen Jesus called, just like we read in 1 Corinthians 1, those that God calls the weak, the foolish, the despised, the base, the are-nots. Well, to net in the off-scouring of Galilee. And now the world's caste system has begun to flip for the first time. Now the last are becoming first. But that ingrained Deep-set prejudices forward by stalwart social stratas are now tenaciously very hard to purge from our world-stained souls. And thus, this sermon that we know of in 5-7 through seven that we would call the Sermon on the Mount. Now, certainly, if these people are to become history makers, world changers, and that includes you, we must first reconcile who we truly are now. Because if we don't recognize who we are, we'll just always assume that we're the outcast class or caste. Now we're blessed. Eternity salty ambassadors. The world's only light. And because Jesus himself inserts himself into the equation as the ultimate and permanent fulfiller, clearly I must take a second look at the browbeating religious leadership incumbents and ask, is this really what I want to be my role model? Is this really what spiritual maturity looks like? Is this really what ministry or fellowship or church is to look like? And I ask you, when you, if you call yourself a Christian, look and you say, this is what spiritual maturity looks like. Because someone out there is a pastor or a leader or just been a Christian for a long time. What do you see? Do you see the more passionate, more excited, more hopeful, more at peace, more driven by faith and less by sight? Or do you see them cynical now? Bitter, nasty. When I first got saved, I looked. I was 19. And when I looked, I had a really hard time finding anything that I wanted to emulate by any means. As a matter of fact, it's really sad. It's often like marriage to some cases, where what happens is if they see a couple and they look like they're staring at each other's eyes and they're still sort of Vivaldi playing in the background, the doves are released and chocolate is flowing on the table, they just assume if they see rings that they must be newlyweds. So we get that often. Oh, are you newlyweds? Yes. And compared to eternity, 25 years is a pretty short time. And then they see somebody and they're excited about Jesus and they say, oh, you must be a new believer. What kind of load of poo is that? People look and they assume and they'll say, for instance, 94% of the people invited to church have been invited to church by someone who's been a Christian less than a year. Now, I don't know who makes up those kind of statistics, but let me just say it this way. I know Jesus better today than I did the first day I said yes to him. How can I not love him more? How can I not be more blown away? 
Can I possibly get used to the eternal, the immeasurable, the infinite, the everlasting? Can I possibly look and go, oh, well, there's the end of that. And yet, for those of us who might have a little bit of, might we say, biblical or seasoning to our lives, do we look like something somebody else would want to say, now that looks like a grown-up in Christ? Because somewhere down the line, I kind of figured that if I'm going to be a really good Christian and really please God, I'm going to have to be a spiritual Peter Pan. Don't want to grow up. You know, that kind of like that, that becomes my mindset. What in the world is wrong with me? But Jesus pole vaults high over those presuppositions because he tells us that the current model isn't really faulty or flawed. It's really a complete failure. There's the problem. And it's clarion demonstration of the man's death grip addiction on power and prominence. It becomes rife then with extortion and self-indulgence. The icon of how not to look like God. And we can see that. As a matter of fact, that's easier to find than seeing someone go, now that person looks like somebody that looks like Jesus. Isn't it true? But let's face it, the world, why would they publicize a guy that's faithful that hasn't cheated on his wife, that isn't sleeping with someone from his congregation, or hasn't molested a handful of children or whatever. I mean, the guy that just sort of, you could draw a line to, now that's really not news, although it really is. And here's the worst part. I call myself Christian. Do you know what Christian means? Christian means Christ-like. I was born in Chicago. And when I was born in Chicago, do you know what they called me? A Chicagoan. I talk like this. Hey, shut up. I ate Italian food that was like really good Italian food. Stuff that was like pizza that if you drop it on your foot, you break your toes. I knew how to stop a taxi. I knew how to root for the White Sox. Couldn't root for the Cubs. My dad played for the Sox. I would have gotten killed. I knew, how to, I knew which places you could dodge the wind in the Windy City. And ultimately, I moved to California. And when I moved to California, you know what I became? A Californian. I knew how to talk like this now, brah. I could interpret like from like, I was like multi like lingual, man. And I was like, oh, I was like gnarly. I was like, oh, and I knew what that meant. I was like, oh, oh, stoked. And then I moved into Jesus and I became a Christian. I want to speak like him. I want to eat like him. I want to talk like him. Here's the problem. As I look back then and now, and hear me, church, am I looking more? Is my heart craving more to look like Jesus than before? Or is it really, instead of looking more Christian, it's looking more carnal? I'm really, really really concerned. Not of the direction of this church. We are a part of the body of a much larger body. But the direction in general. Where we seek instead to look more like Christian, but we actually seek to look more conspicuous in our faith. To blend in. Now these days, Bible studies are replaced by time at the bars. Christian prayer meetings are replaced by club meetings. And we think somehow we're affecting the world more. 
Now, I'm not here to lay a legal chip on you. And here I already, like, I feel like I have to apologize for this. But can I just say, if we're not actually seeking to look more like Jesus, then we're worshiping something else. Because God made really clear, you become like what you worship. And that could be just like them. Death grip addiction to power and prominence and what that looks like. So this is what I'm missing. Jesus goes for the throat of this. And I think about what about those that I actually grant the power or the honor of influence in my life? You know, not everybody has that. I mean, one of the first things we tried to teach our children when we were younger and they were younger is that not everybody should be your friend. I mean, you can make acquaintances everywhere and you can seek to be friendly, but people graduate to friendship because a real friend has the power of influence on your life. And you want to be careful who is going to influence you. That should be earned. You don't want a total stranger influencing you. And let's face it, these days, a rumor can go around the world while the truth is getting its boots on. So Jesus goes straight for the throat of it for the rest of this chapter, and then we'll go to the very core and heart of it in the next. And here's the problem. When I look at this first verse that we start moving into here, there's something really crazy in this. Because it says... We'll be called least and we'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Did you notice that? Have you ever really thought that there's going to be more than one type of strata in heaven? How do I wrap my head around that and not be proud? Be self-ambitious. Except in this and hear me. And we're now about to get into our text because we have quite a bit to cover. But it does kind of walk into six steps. Walk me on this. Listen. There was a time, and I'm going to sound like grandpa for a moment, and it's easier the way my voice is right now. There was a time when actually the culture was governed by a thing called honor. Now, honor was not something you could steal. Honor was not something you can connive. Honor was something you earned. Honor because you kept your word. Honor because you were fair and honest. Honor because, to be honest, you even suffered to keep that word. Because we thought more corporately. But somewhere down the line, we became more individual. And becoming more individual, it's all right to be an individual, because you certainly are one. I look around the room, none of you look like anyone else. That's actually very encouraging. None of you look like me, that's even more encouraging. Yes, for instance. So, hear me on this. Somewhere down the line, we replaced it with a thing called self-esteem. Do you know what self-esteem means? How do you feel about yourself? See, with honor, you could feel good about yourself, but you had to do something for it. You had to be a person of character. There had to be a character behind that. And what character is, in the simplest sense, is what you do when no one else is looking. But now, it's about self-esteem. And when it's about self-esteem, it's all about how do you feel about yourself. I've been to juvenile detention centers where a kid stabbed another kid with a pencil until he was dead, and he was applauded because of his thoroughness. Because we don't want Jimmy to feel bad about himself. And there's the problem with self-esteem. Because the moment you start talking things that make you feel guilty, you're like, hey, 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 you're making me feel guilty. My question normally is, are you? In an honor state, you actually are thankful to recognize your guilt because if you could deal with it, you could restore your honor. But from a self-esteem perspective, well, now, well, don't make me feel bad about myself under any circumstance. Who wants to look in the mirror on a bad day? It's bad for your self-esteem. Who wants to go to the doctor when they're not feeling well? That will be bad for their self-esteem. 
Who wants to get that letter? I just want to be friends. That's bad for my self-esteem. And the reason I say that is this. That in the culture that we're looking at, that Jesus is going for the throat of, when we start thinking about ourselves, and it's all about us, it'll be about our outer shell. But when it comes about honor, like God who looks at the inside, it'll be about our hearts. And in this culture that Jesus is looking at, I realize that someday we're going to stand before God. And we just assume as we play the scene in our heads that the only real deal is going to be that Jesus is going to be like, did you qualify or not? Did you accept me as Lord and Savior? All right, come on in. It's like the only litmus test. But I look at these first couple of verses, beloved, and please hear my heart in this. And I could see Jesus looking at us and saying, you could have been great here. I mean, you really could have been great for eternity. You could have been great, but you, you just, you're just here now. And I don't want you to be able to say, I wish my pastor had taught me that. So let me just say out of love, you've been warned. I want you to be great. And here's the problem. In our culture here in London, being great is actually not applauded. Because if you were playing sports even, and you were the most gifted one there, and you gave your very best, you would be showing off. And we don't do that here. Do you know what that is? I would call it social communism. Everyone has to be the same. After all, we were all just basically a little bit of scum that kind of, by some fortuitous you know, things and a blast of lightning, we became what we are today. So why would there be any greatness in us? But if we were created by an infinite God who makes no mistakes and you will not be his first, well, then clearly there's got to be greatness in every one of us that's bespoke to our name. And if that be the case, then it's going to be so much more than just, well, let's not stand out a little bit because that would be bad. Well, in this culture... The religious leaders, those former emblems of, well, of external righteousness, well, they've really gotten their whitewashed external piety down. But unfortunately, inside, they're still full of dead man's bones. As a matter of fact, this is what Jesus is going to give. Give you a coming attraction in, in regards to what he'll say in chapter 23. Six times he's going to call them hypocrites. Five times he'll call them blind. Two times he'll call them fools. He'll call them vipers, serpents, and sons of hell. How does that sound? Who wants to be part of that group? And the irony of it all is we thought that they were the emblem of decent religion. He'll actually say, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? That they were guilty of all the righteous blood from Abel to Zechariah. And that they will receive a greater condemnation. Man, I'm not into this. And I get this image in my head. And the image that I get in my head is like, let's just say that Lem and myself, we're going to go and start working out. David as well. And while we're at it, let's get the other David in there because we need somebody fit. The Davids. I got you both in there. I'm trying to, you know. And we get in there. And the issue is, is that we want to go in there. And, and David's got a plan. He's going to, I mean, he, you know, he's a trainer. So, uh, you know, the last week, by the way, I, I, you know, speaking at the Bible College in York, uh, I was roomed with a couple. No, that's a little weird. There's a wall between their room and our room, but it's like light comes through it and I could hear them breathe. So praise, anyways. But, uh, <laughs> praise God that they weren't very amorous. But, uh, they were from Israel. 
And it was like such a super neat thing. And we got to talk on a lot of levels in regards to some of our training uh, previous and so forth. It was really, really, really sweet. But I mean, the guy talks about what it took to be, and he was a bodyguard for the minister of defense. And I started laughing because I think that's like a, like a bodyguard for Iron Man. You know, it's like, uh, he's the minister of defense. Don't you think you should be able to, I don't defend. But uh, anyways, you know, it, it, the, the whole point of it all is that I kind of look and I think, okay, and he talks about strapping up on your back and running up and down. So let's say David's got that kind of plan. And he's just going to start running us. And what happens is David kind of comes and he's like, this is what I've got. We're going to do this for the next, for the next three hours. And I'm like, hours? You know, and then we're going to do this and we're going to eat like four carrots and a piece of celery. Then we're going to run some more and then we're going to look at a glass of water and then we're going to do something else and put some lemon in our eyes and run some more. Right. And David's like, because this is, you know, you know, you know, David, he's like, yeah, whoopee, whoopee. Whoopee. And we look and we got to go, are you nuts? But let's see, Lem shows up and he's got like this killer tracksuit on and he's got like 300 pound trainers on and the guy has got you know, he looks like he's ready but the problem is is that and i do too i don't want to just be so like here we are and we're kind of all like decked out and we're just we're looking like we know what we're doing but we don't do any of it well like i don't need to do any of all that check out my suit i have got the best tracksuit around and, and david goes it's not the best tracksuit and i go why and he says because it's not sweaty and i'm like that would ruin it Check out these shoes. I don't want to mar these shoes. And he goes, they're actually built that way for a reason. It isn't for you to sport it with Bee Gees playing in the back of your head. And the reason I say that is we can do that with religion, and that becomes the problem here. The problem here is that it's like the religious leaders were slapping on the tracksuit, but they were obese. And I'm not saying that either of us are, by the way. And so the conclusion at the end of it all, which will get us to this entirety, is this. You shall be perfect. And I know what you probably think, and I would. I'd be like, what? You mean perfect? This word perfect, and let's get to that so that the whole thing falls into line. Luke says it in Luke 1.3 when he says, having had perfect understanding. Perfect understanding? And Matthew 19, to the rich merchant in verse 21, he says, if you want to be perfect, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Jesus himself in Luke 13, verse 32 says, I shall be perfected. Speaking of Jesus in Hebrews 2.10, it tells us that the captain of our salvation was made perfect through suffering. Jesus? Wait a minute, what? I read in Romans 12.2 that there was a perfect will of God. Used most, by the way, of disciples of Christ. Going on to perfection, Hebrews 6, 1. Being made perfect. The question in Galatians 3, 3, you started in the Spirit, you're trying to be made perfect by the flesh. I'm not going to go, well, what am I missing? Is it that perfect must be different than the way I see perfect? Because the way that I see perfect is flawless, right? But wait a minute. If perfect is flawless, then how could Jesus become perfect? In the book of First John, four different times he uses it, actually five, six different times he uses this, but every time he speaks, every time he uses the word perfect, he uses it in regards to love. He says, truly the love of God is perfected. His love is perfected in us. Love has been perfected among us in this. Perfect love casts out fear. We're made perfect in love. I start to go, wait a minute. And then in Revelation, Jesus says, in chapter 3, verse 2, about the Sardis church, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works.
perfect before God. So what am I missing? Well, it's actually quite simple, to be honest. The word in the Greek is the word telaios. Would you say telaios? Come on, now it's Greek. You can't play like telaios. Telaios is Greek. Telaios. Thank you for the five of you did that. Okay, now listen. Telaios in its simplest sense means reaches its proper end. That's what it means. This is why Jesus could be perfected in suffering. It was the end. Let me put it this way. There is a train. And that train on the front of it will have an end destination like every bus has an end destination on it. If you take that train to where it terminates, you've taken it the end of the route. You've gone to Laos. If you do not take it all the way and you get off somewhere beforehand, you have not taken it, you've not been perfected in the train, if that makes sense. Or the train has not been perfected in your route. Or route, if you wish. It is the word that Jesus uses on the cross, tetelestai. Tetelestai, telestalaios, means it is finished. At the cross, Jesus says, if you will, finish the route. He's stepping off the bus or the train because he's finished his route. And this becomes the problem in our text. Somewhere between, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, the emblem of external piety, and you shall be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, you've come to your completion. In between that are six statements. And the six statements are basically this. You've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say. And understand what I get is this. That the religious leaders were on the train, but somewhere between here and a terminating stop, they got off. And because they got off, they never even entered into zone one. And the reason is because they actually didn't let Jesus pay the fare. And if you let Jesus pay the fare, you take the train all the way to where it terminates. But if you do it by your own selfish ambition and self-righteousness, your own actions and deeds, you're going to have to get off somewhere. So these six statements, if you will, that Jesus makes are in essence the six stops in between getting on and getting off at the terminating. And that's what we see here. So look at it with me. Believe it or not, we are actually getting into the text. So he says this then, starting in verse 21. First of them, you've heard it said, to those of old you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. Externally. You know what the best part about this? If you talk to somebody and say, you need saving, they'll say, I'm a good person. And you say, what makes you a good person? Usually the first thing they say is, I haven't killed anyone. I find it interesting, their own self-defined righteousness is the very thing Jesus shows us here. Although you've heard it said that that's the case, it is not means to righteousness. And I've heard people say, well, Jesus is so nice and loving. And then Paul steps in and really adds hardcore to it. This is not easy stuff here. Jesus just upped the ante, if you will. Hey, you've heard it said, don't kill anyone. Anyone in here kill anyone? I just want to see a show of hands so I know how to be careful with you. Uh, and he says, if it's the case, you'll be in danger of the judgment. But then he actually throws three other things. And I don't want you to miss this. Brother, 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 he throws in here, that there's always this attitude. And here it is. In verse 22, it says, whoever is angry with their brother without a cause. Do you see that text there? Now, what's interesting is the way that this plays out often is the opposite of the way we see it here. This is it. Now, follow me on this for a second. 
Jesus says, whoever's angry at his brother without a cause, well, you're going to have to deal with this because you know what that word is? That word is bitterness. That's what the word is. And Jesus says, you might be saying, I haven't killed anyone. And God's looking and he's seeing the films play in your heart and mind. And in your heart and mind's eye, you've killed a lot of people. Some of them slowly. And you're like, yeah, die slowly. I haven't killed anyone. God's like, oh, yes, you have. Because I'm looking at the inside. And that particular theater, everything's 18 and it ain't pretty. And, but he says, listen, he's angry to brother without a cause, right? He says, you're going to deal. And then he gives, he gives us words we don't normally use, like raka, which, by the way, means empty or worthless. And there's three levels, he says. By the way, there's the council, and then there's the judgment, and then there's ultimately hellfire. So what happens somewhere? Why did fool become hellfire? I mean, between you call someone empty, and then you go to fool, because you know what happens there? It's rife with pride. And nothing will stop you from getting saved more. Nothing will stop you from accepting the love of God more than your pride. And listen, do not mistake honor and pride. Pride is a self-reliance. Honor is good character. So hear me. Someone's mad at another person. And then he says, so you're about to bring your gift to the altar and you realize that your brother has something against you. Don't even play this religious game with me. Go get that right first. That's a loose paraphrase. But again, don't just believe me. Here's the crazy part. Let's just put it. Let's just play this out, if you will. Your name. Gary. Lucy. Lucy, this is Angel. Do you guys know each other? Okay, good. So let's just say Angel and Lucy are really angry. But this is how it started. Angel just one day woke up on the wrong side and she kind of, and she said, hi, she's, hi, Lucy. And Lucy says, hey, yeah. And you know, sometimes when you're in the wrong mood, you just read a text wrong. She's like, I can't believe she said, hey, yeah. And I know how she said it too. Hey, yeah. She was angry at me. She was being nasty. That was the nastiest, hey, yeah, that I ever saw. Oh my goodness. And she's angry at her for no real reason. So that day, Angel gets busy. People that are getting tattoos on their back, she says, you know, Lucy is horrible because they can't remove it. She starts IHateLucy.com websites. She calls all of Lucy's friends. Don't hang out with Lucy. You don't understand. She said, hey, yeah. Right? She's nasty. And I, you know, more I can tell you what was, let me tell you what was wrapped up in that hey, yeah. Right? Now, we can all agree in the end of it all. I'm trying to make it absurd for a good reason. She's angry at Lucy for no real apparent reason. Okay. Now, the both of them are going to come to church. And as they both go to church, one of them has a legitimate cause against the other. Which one has a legitimate cause against the other? Lucy does. Lucy's done nothing wrong. She owes Angel nothing. She's done nothing wrong because Angel was angry at her or bitter at her without a cause. That's the point. And because that's the case, who owes who what? Angel owes Lucy a humble apology. Does that make sense? That's the part we miss. Because the way we normally play it out is, I'm, yeah, I'm glad you guys worked that out, by the way. Yeah. The way we normally play it out is somebody just kind of gets nasty and goes, oh, David, you better not go to the altar because I've got something against you. You know? And, and, and then David's like, whoa, I can't even go to church now because cause David's from California now, right? You know? And it's like, oh my goodness, I can't go there because someone has something against me. But he has nothing, I have nothing legitimate against David. Does that make sense? 
And this is the way that works. And what happens is people play this thing out. And it's like, oh, well, but we're going to have communion next week. We better get that worked out. Listen, in the end of it all, the person, and this is the way it works, gossip, rumors, back talk, that kind of stuff is classic for being angry at someone without a cause. Sitting to listen to someone and go, let me fill you in on all of this stuff, though you're never a witness to it, fills you full of information to make you bitter at someone without a cause. You're like, well, I heard. Well, don't you? And the amazing thing is then it becomes fact, right? And they're like, well, let me tell you what. First of all, David, he does this and he does that. How do you know? Because I heard from so-and-so, from so-and-so, from so-and-so. And that's a really, you know, that's a reasonable cause to believe. Or I just want to believe it. And then what happens in the end of it all is that you try to get the innocent guy not to go to church. Because you know what he did? Nothing! But the other person, that's nasty. And so listen, here's the deal, because it says agree with your adversary quickly, because otherwise you're going to have to pay everything you owe. Well, which one owes who? That's the point. And the truth be told, when somebody does kind of bend and get twisted on you, pray for them. And pray for them that they come to you when they stop making it about themselves, humble themselves and get to the point you're like, you know what? I've spoken to too many people about you. And the truth be told, I don't even know what I'm doing anymore. And that's what happens. But here's the worst part about bitterness. It does so many horrible things to us. First of all, it kills fellowship. It sucks joy. It jades your perspective. It causes me to see everyone in church as a bunch of hypocrites. Because let's face it, and you watch that. It's like there was a time when your hands were raised and you were singing. You didn't care if you sounded like you were strangling a goose. You were just happy to worship God. But now you see the person next to you and they're going like this. And you're like, oh, that hypocrite. I can't believe you know they're raising their hands to have someone look at them. And all of a sudden that guy's sitting back there. I know why he's doing that. Because he thinks he's got a good voice. You know, and all of a sudden it's like before you were just happy being you and God. But the moment you get bitter, it look, it's just like it, you just vomit all over everybody. And that's what happens. And it makes a mockery out of the grace of God. Because if there's anyone who has a right to be angry or bitter, it's Jesus. And he's not. And I'm supposed to represent him? It's like drinking poison to spite your enemies. The worldly standard, it's acceptable. Because if you are, then you're a victim. And if you're a victim, you can make excuses. But that makes you rich in excuses, but impoverished in hope. So you're like, you know, in the end of it all, this is why I'm a victim. And the moment someone starts playing the victim card on you and wants to tell you every reason why, because of this thing and that thing, stop listening. For your own sake, stop listening. Because what's happening is they're handing you the poison they're drinking. You were aware of that, right? And then what happens is you come in and you're like, oh, man, that person. Because I heard, but by the time you know this, when your heart hears it, it doesn't siphon whether it's a fact or not. It just sort of agrees. So let me ask you. When I look at the religious leaders, they had a right to that. They had a right to judge everybody, and therefore they could be bitter at anyone. And then, of course, they could judge them for it. So let me ask you this. How many of you have gotten off at the first stop? Bitterness. You know, at the end of it all, it's intimacy with Jesus and proper rightness. But if we're going to be honest with ourselves, we recognize. The first stop is, you know what? I, I'm just, I'm bitter and it's affected my walk with God. It's affected those that I love around me. It's certainly affected the way I look at fellowship. It's affected the way that I view Christianity. And therefore, it's affected the way that I view Jesus. So this is what I need to do before we go to the next stop. I need to stop and we need to pray. 
I'll just kind of buzz through this. And I look at I want to be respectful of time. The good news is we're all going to get fed at the end of this, so that's good news. But can we just do that and just go, okay, well, yeah, bitterness, right? And not just go, Lord, what could it be me? Could it be me that is choosing to be bitter? And because I'm choosing to be bitter, I can never really be as right with God as I should be. There's no way I can take this train to the end if I get off at this stop. You know what's worse? Is godly Christian people can get caught up in this too. And when they do, they start pushing people out of the train. Or worse yet, probably more likely pulling them out of the train because they've gotten off too. They're like, oh, why don't you come in with me? There you are. You know what the end of it all is intimacy with Jesus, being completely right, and you're taking it to where it is. Well, you're a heart. See, what I realize is Jesus ups the ante. Isn't that I have to have, I need to increase my discipline, and that's what needs to change. What really needs to change is I need a new heart. Not just, well, I need to pray more and give more and, and not kill more. But you know how it is. Somebody finds a reason to step off the train and they're going to look at you and they're your friends and you love them and they love you and they look and they say something completely ungodly like, aren't you coming off the train with me? I thought you cared. I'm angry. I'm bitter. Don't you need to come off with me? You know, the moment you step off, you can't be right with God like he intended. So I'm going to do this. A moment of silence. We're going to pray. Then we're going to hit, let the doors close. And we're going to move to the next stop. So do this with me. God, is it me? Lord, for every person that's gotten off, be it me or others, the door is open right now and I want to get back on. I don't want to be pulled off this train anymore. I don't want to stop here and feel like I have a right to be stupid. Get me back on where I'm right with you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Train's moving again. Verse 27. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. That's how you even look at a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. Because remember, the issue is the heart. Here's the problem. Talmudic law, that's the Jewish traditional verbal traditions, allowed Ashley Madison. They allowed, in the interpretation of adultery for the Jewish culture, a Jewish man could have intercourse with any person, even if he were married, as long as she wasn't another married Jewish woman. So, hiring a prostitute, no problem. Anything for hire, no problem. A Gentile, no problem. And Jesus is going for their throat. And she goes, really? You think that's okay? I've actually sat in a Christian school while the headmaster spoke to the assembly, the entire school, and told them that pornography was okay and that every teacher agreed with him. Because nobody else is being harmed. Needless to say, there was at least one person that was a little bit outspoken in disagreement. James tells us that we're driven away when we're drawn away and enticed. And when that desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it brings forth death. 
But let's be honest. The world standard on this, bag as many girls as you can, boys. These days, I find it strange. I mean, when I was a kid, when I was a kid, guys did and they were applauded, but girls were called horrible names if they did. Today, everybody applauds everyone for it. There's no marks for that. Here's the worst part. If that's the world standard, do we really think somehow that we think it's okay at the church? It is not okay at the church. It should never be. And we cannot speak against one sexual sin and not speak against them all. And we do that. We'll go, well, we don't like this because we think it's perverted. We think this is sick. But truth be told, we either agree with it all or we don't. And I agree with it all. And my challenge is to not get off there and say, wait a minute. Well, I'm not having sex with lots of people. It's a monogamous relationship for the moment. We love each other. Isn't that enough? But God wrote otherwise. But yeah, I know he's probably writing an appendix right now for that to change his old laws. No, he's not. Please hear me. Scripturally, commitment produces time. Time produces intimacy. And intimacy produces oneness. The enemy flips it and says, if you can get enough sexual intimacy or oneness, maybe you'll become intimate as a couple. And as a couple, you'll get more time with them and maybe you'll get a commitment out of them. But have you learned yet? Guys have a tendency to give sex to get, you know, give love to get sex and girls give sex to get love. It's a sick and twisted and wrong thing. God doesn't want you barring those scare, wearing those scars, bearing those scars. Why do you want to be re- filled with regret? So again, a quick stop. And let's pray. Lord, I do not want to get my desirability or importance or a sign of my virility from some form of of unfaithfulness. I don't want to say it's good for my self-esteem for girls to desire me. I want to be validated at the cross where you know everything about me but chose to die for me anyways. Please, God. And here where you tell us that it is so serious with the right eye and the right hand that dismembership is a lesser sacrifice. I want to be serious about it then. So please, please, purge from me anything that could somehow apply to these verses. In Jesus' name, amen. The train stopped twice now. Prayerfully, you're still on it with me. And we pull into our third stop. Verse 31. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for any reason other than sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. Whoever marries a woman that is divorced commits adultery. Divorce and remarriage was more than just common among the Pharisees. It was epidemic. It was so epidemic that according to a couple of the historians of the day that the average Pharisee had between 11 and 13 wives on and off. He could divorce and remarry without a problem. And often what happened is women were rotated throughout the Pharisees. Ladies, that's, and we can agree, abhorrent. It's an abomination. And here we are now trying to take a stand for what we think is biblical marriage. 
But we haven't taken a stand for biblical marriage in over 50 years. Because if we really took a stand for biblical marriage, we would tell people, you get married and you stay married. You work it out. Now, I'm not here to diss your past. I'm here to challenge your future. We have never, in the hundreds and hundreds of marriages that we've ever done, we have never once encouraged divorce, nor ever intend to. I'd rather kill you. It's good prison ministry. Rather have that. And the reason is because God knows what he's doing. Today we're changing things. We have prenups. That means we have our own nickname for it. It's a little prenup. What does that mean? Well, if things don't work out, you can't have my guitars. Is that right? Someone stole them, so you can't have them anyways. Hear me in this. Now the vows are changed from till death do us part, till as long as we both agree. Have you known that? And that, by the way, is being changed in some of the books of common prayer now. I just want to challenge you with that. I wouldn't be surprised, and I'm not the prophet, but or the son of one that I'm aware of, but, uh, and we're kind of a non-profit church, so we're okay. Anyways, but uh, no, we're not against prophecy. Just want to make that clear. That, that I wouldn't be surprised in the next 10 years you could actually sign marriage contracts for certain terms. Kind of like five years with an you know, option to continue or whatever. Like, kind of like you would with rent. You know, if it happens, you'd be like, I guess that guy knew what he was talking about, and if not, you'll probably have forgotten anyways. So, but hear me in this. We've kind of looked at what happens if someone comes in, well, you know, we don't get along, so we should probably get divorced. No, no, no. Irreconcilable differences, that's called people. Irreconcilable difference means I have a different view on something than you do. Guess what? That happens with everyone. Did you figure that out yet? We grow up and we learn those things. And the reason, again, I'm not here to dish your past. What's done is done. But I had a couple come in once that wanted to get married. He left her for him. Wait a minute. He left her for her. She left him for him. You get that? She left her husband for the guy. He left his wife for her, this new girl. And they come in my office. I'm like, well, we really want to get married. And understand, just because people want to get married doesn't mean we say yes to that. And I'm like, let me ask you something. If she left her husband for you, and you left your wife for her, and then you guys become husband and wife, what's to make you confident that she won't leave you for someone else? The new model. And, this, and likewise. And I kid you not, the guy looks at me and says, we, we could always hope. I'm like, wow. Put some rings on that. And I'm not trying to be mean. I'm trying to be honest. And people go, well, you know, you hear people back when it's like, well, we stayed together for the kids and how horrible that was. No, it may have been bad, but it wasn't half as bad as what would have happened had they not. And what happens is if you don't give yourself a way out, you work it out. And so when you have a, a religious society that says, hey, you know what? No big deal. You know, it's kind of like any kind of game. You know, we kind of if we really lose, we just let's just die and we'll start over. We'll get a new life. But then we don't even have the try harder button anymore. You know, where something gets rough and we forget how to try harder to make it work. We just go, oh, we're done. I'm so not into that. And please hear me on that. For those of you who are single, which I look around, that's probably the majority of you here. When the time comes where, if it is so, by God's grace, we stand at the altar together. And I don't mean that in regards to me being your husband. I mean that in regards to the pastor. Make that clear. We will assume that you mean for life. 
This is not something we test drive. We commit. If my wife, and ask her, if my wife and I were not committed, we would have not made our first two years. We would have gotten divorced every other day. We probably just wouldn't have gotten back together to do it again. My parents, if I remember correctly, if I, according to these papers that I found in my mother's Bible, of all things, were married and divorced and remarried six times to each other in the first 11 years. To each other. The only thing that stopped that cycle was my mom passed away, so they couldn't do it anymore. When my mom was actually on her way to the hospital, he carried her across the threshold to marry her one last time so she wouldn't die single. And I think that through and I think, what kind of craziness is that? On again, off again, on again. The church, and, and again, listen, because now we're more than halfway and we obviously we're moving, we're picking up steam here as we get towards its destination. I mean, the issue really is commitment, isn't it? Where's my commitment? Where is my commitment at all? Can I bail on everything? Am I really committed, first and foremost, to Christ? Because if you can't be committed to Christ, none of the other stuff's ever going to happen anyways. And I know I'm probably sounding old, but good. Because the new stuff kind of stinks, if you'll pardon me for saying. And even if you don't have to pardon me, it still stinks and you have to forgive me. Don't be bitter, because we've got that. We've, We've gotten there. So what if we as a church actually cheered each other on, cheered on marriages to where it wasn't just don't get divorced and that's success, but actually where marriages were like a thriving thing. So the other people that were around you went, man, I wish I was married. You ever have somebody, man, those of you all married there, somebody look around and go, boy, am I glad I'm single. That's no success to us, is it? So stop one, bitterness. Stop two, lust. Stop three, commitment. Let me ask you, how many of us right now are at that place where we really aren't committing like we should to what we should? Everything, man. We shop churches, we kind of come and go. We shop friends, we come and go. We shop Jesus. And when he suits us, we use him. And when he doesn't, we just go to something else. Is that what you really want? Then you're not even on the train at all. So we'll stop, we'll pray, and we'll move on. Please, God. Make us people of commitment. In Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 33. Now I have to pick it up for the sake of time. Again, you've heard of that it was said, of those of old you shall not swear falsely, but perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, don't swear at all. In Psalm 15.4, it talks about a person who can ascend to the hill of the Lord, who can stand in his holy place, he with clean hands and a pure heart, who has lifted up his soul to an idol, and swears to his own hurt. Do you know what that means? It is, he keeps his word. Now, please hear me. There is a worldly standard, and we're supposed to be the ones who impact, influence, not imitate the world around us. And if we think, that well, the world does it, so it's okay in the church, we're full of nonsense. It's like, Let's be honest. In the world, the ends justify the means. And if the ends justify the means, well, then if you lie or steal or do whatever, it's okay. It's because in the end of it all, something worked out. And we watch movies like this. But on the other side of it, a Christian is supposed to be someone who keeps their word. And when you keep your word, it is so much more than, well, and you're like, if you have to add something as collateral to it, I swear on the grave of my mother, or, you know, swear on the grave of my father, or Nico Montoya, or whatever it is, by the time you're done, what you're saying is, my word doesn't mean anything unless I back it up with collateral. How sad is that? Could you imagine if people were like, but you're a Christian, aren't you supposed to be telling the truth? You know, what's interesting is you can get that more from a lost person than you could from another Christian. Imagine if, 
Because you're a Christian, you are expected to be honest and to keep it. Well, maybe we can't control the rest of the world and we can't. But can we do that here? Could you imagine if we were those kind of people here, that this would be a fellowship where marriage is honored and we would cheer you on of an amazing one, that we would actually seek to be forgivers and lovers of each other, that we would actually seek to not scope each other out by what they look like physically, but how we can invest in them spiritually. Could you imagine what that would be like? This would be an awesome place. And I kind of think it is. So let's just up it. And I look at that and I think, wow, wouldn't that be amazing? When my wife and I were going to get our marriage license, because you have to get in America, you have to get your license first, then you can go and stand before them. So, I mean, that way that they pull you over, they're like, let me see your license. Right? Anyways, but uh, in it, my wife turns to me and on it, it says, you know, and I'm watching them because we're in the queue and there are people and they're raising their hand. Do you solemnly swear? And basically what you're saying is I am the guy that's on here and I'm not married already. And this isn't my sister. It's basically what you're saying. And everyone's kind of raising their hand, doing their thing, putting their hand on something. And it's interesting because we're putting hand on a Bible. And I look at my wife-to-be, who is a very much a rule keeper, and this is one of those funnier moments, so you can have fun with her later on it. And, and I said, I can't do this. And she looks and she goes, what? What do you mean? You, we're in the queue! You can't do it. I'm like, I can't swear. Scripturally, the very book that we're actually swearing on tells me not to swear. She's like, yeah, but I'm... Sh-. And you know how in those moments you just freak out and you say whatever you can say? Yeah, I'm sure God will understand, like those kind of things. And I'm like, I think we should pray. She's like, yes, we should pray. We should pray. But I'm not going to let you hear what I'm praying. I'm just going to pray. I'm watching him, steps forward, tension comes. Tension. And finally, the gal's like, will you raise your hand? I'm like, sure, I don't have a problem raising my hand. I, I, right? And so my hand's raised. They go to my wife first, and they're like, do you solemnly swear that you are this person, you're not marrying your, your brother, and you're not married, whatever? And she goes... Yes. Right? That's my turn. Do you swear? Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, as a Christian, my word has to be enough. I am everything that I say I'm on there. And the guy was like, Tum. and then I kind of looked and went, <laughs> I blew it all on the way out. I blew it with pride. I was like, ticket, I was obedient. And I was like, ha, 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 ha. The Lord's like, all right, let's remove that blessing. Now, the whole point is, but what if we were like that? Where it isn't like, oh, but no, I really mean it. You don't have to really mean it. You should always really mean it. Or better yet, let's not talk as much sometimes. And I know you're thinking, you too, right now, let's get to eating. Well, let's get to those last few stuff. But let's stop for a moment and pray about the importance of our word. And then we'll move on to our last couple stops quickly. All right, Lord, make us people of our word. So that when people come in here, they see honesty. Not the punch you in the face kind of honesty, but the real care to tell the truth. And if we don't know what the truth is, then let's not talk and try to make up truth. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you've made it through four stops now. Are you still on the train with me? All right, well, here we go. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And oh, this is a fun one. Do you know, really, actually, when we look at these, and by the way, this is in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, that it's, a, it's, a, it's actually not encouraged. It isn't like if somebody knocks out your tooth, you are required to knock out their tooth. You just can't knock out their face. It was a limit, not an encouragement. And what they were being taught was this, that you have a right, entitlement, which, by the way, doesn't make you poor in spirit. If somebody hurts you, 
You hurt them back. Hey, now, guys, now, do they do this here in England where guys, like, play these games where some guy, like, hits another guy and then the guy hits him back? And, and it always, did you notice, it always gets worse, you know? It's like you go like this and they're like, you went like this. Oh, yeah, well, you went like this. Oh! And by the time you're done, it's like two guys are like their arms are dragging on the floor and they're friends. Yeah, how does that work? Okay, and then it's just this, right? And people, this is another great one to take out of context. So if a guy slaps you, well, then slap him back. No, it doesn't say that. And it says, oh, if a guy beats on you, just let him beat on you some more. And that doesn't say that either. And we don't want to say that because we know that that doesn't sound right. So what does it say? If a guy, first of all, what's the verb? You tell me. Look in the word. We're almost done here. Don't lose me. Slaps. Do you see the word slaps? Okay. Where? Right cheek. David, come here for a second. <laughs> I'm looking at David. Which cheek is his right cheek? On his face. This one. The average person is left or right-handed. Right-handed. How does this slap that? <laughs> right? Yeah, that's good. See, all that acting, right? You know? Yeah. Okay, here's the point. This is not physical abuse, as we know it. This isn't like I'm going, it's none of that. It's not. What it is, is an insult. In the Arab market to this day, in Israel, in Jerusalem, I've gone in there and said, oh, I can get those for less. And they're like, no, you can't. And they go like this to you. Stupid person is what they're saying. And then what happens? I did this. There was a, there was a Jewish stall. And they were trying to sell it for them. I'm like, I could get it for half that price. They're like, like they do that. And they do it like that on your neck. And I'm like, oh. So then what I did is I went out and got them for half the price, showed the receipt. And I'm like, ah. And they went like this. They showed me their face. And I went, ah, Gentile mercy. Boy, that was worse than slapping. <laughs> so if someone does this and they're basically what they're doing is they're insulting you. What do you do? You are from the other side as well. And the point is this. The opposite of that is entitlement. You're aware that people are going to make fun of you. No matter where you stand or think you stand or don't stand, someone's going to make fun of you for it. Christians should not be known for constantly trying to defend how cool they are. So someone goes like that and you're like, wow, that was a, you know, we would say that was a real slap in the face. And that doesn't mean, wow, somebody really beat you up. But that means that they really insulted you. Could you imagine? Here's the cool thing. I read that verse, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. In those moments, you almost chant it like a mantra. Oh, you don't want to mess with my bodyguard. And they're like, Psh. and you're like, well, I could fight this. But in the end of it, all I'd want to do is kill you. And nobody wins that way. But if God gets you, you actually may surrender to him. Is this about justice? Or is this about mercy? If I really want justice on that person, then do I have a right to expect that I should have justice upon me? Do you really think, if I were to say to God, give me what you owe me, what does God owe me? Hell. And I, don't, I, I have no interest in asking justice from God, but rather asking mercy and grace. Oh, again, the whole idea of it is it isn't like, oh, I'm in Brixton. Let me show my wallet and see who jumps me. That's not the idea here. And this isn't the idea here that somebody's going to Jackie Chan you and you're going to kind of come back with Bruce Lee. The whole idea of this, or Jet Lee or whoever you want on that, the, the whole point of it is that we want to make sure that when somebody tries to insult us, and here's the problem, you guys, please hear me, because while we're at our last stop at, after this, 
And I know we've gone long, but we kind of need to. I mean, how, how do I stop this train where the whole point's getting it to the end? Uh, is that we've been accused of this here. So let me say publicly this. When somebody makes up something or goes crazy or just has some kind of weirdness or whatever, the natural thing to do is say, hey, you guys, let me air someone's laundry for you. But out of love, when they're trying to do that, the best thing we can do is not say anything at all. But then you know what people do? They say, well, wonder why they didn't say anything. Perhaps maybe that could be the case or this could be the case. And it's amazing how now you start filling in that space with all kinds of things that the enemy loves to say. Could it just be that we're actually trying to be loving and not try to air things on everyone? And please know that it is our desire, certainly mine in this, to do exactly what Jesus told me here. And there are no shortage of people who are going to want to slap you on the right cheek. And even people that love God, but maybe not for that moment. And what you do at that moment, and please understand, I grew up a fighter, so you have to understand this is extremely contrary to me. I don't have a problem going, turn the other cheek and roundhouse as you turn. Drop the kind of kick that lays them out and they're paralyzed for a day and a half. I could do that. Now today, I might hurt myself a lot more than them. So when you approach a scripture and your spirit disagrees with the scripture, one of the two things has to change. Which one are you going to choose? But if you don't want to issue mercy, do you want it issued to you? So we're going to pray. Get to our last one. Conclude. Lord, I know that it's so easy to want to entertain weirdnesses. I know that we watch the world standard is one where we watch revenge movies and somebody that doesn't avenge seems like they're weak or inferior. And it is so absurd to even assume that forgiveness is a sense of strength. But when you tell us not to resist, antihistamine, like the word we use antihistamine, antihistamine, not stand against a person like that, not to go and fire back at them, as I read slapping being rapizzo, the word that would mean to let fall, not to beat. It's a mark of disgrace. Lord, I can't help but see you, Jesus. And if I am to look more like you, who has infinite power that could have called down 12 legions of angels and still had the, the hairs plucked from your beard that received infinite types of humiliation, and I want to become more like you, then I cannot be the kind of person that's built by vengeance. That takes me back to the beginning with bitterness. And I need to remember that pride is the cancer here. But you built this whole message here on blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, those that aren't full of themselves but poor in spirit. And when I see somebody suing another Christian and you tell us in 1 Corinthians that that's an utter failure, because obviously the one thing more, the opposite of humility is entitlement. And when I see when a Roman soldier can lay a spear upon a person and demand them to go one mile, and we would rather argue and complain than go with a second mile, because in the first mile we're doing what's expected, but in the second mile they start to ask why. Show us. 
that that second mile is the one where real ministry takes place in Jesus' name. Amen. Our last stop, beloved. We've now made five stops on this. After this, we actually bring it in. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But he's like, let me tell you, that's acceptable everywhere because you look smart. You're careful. And here's our danger. The word love. Love is not a warm feeling or an extreme measure of care. Warm is a commitment to serve someone. And that's the difference. To be honest, the love God speaks of here, you love people you like the least. Let's just be honest. That's how God could actually love someone and hate them at the same time. Hate them not in the sense that he wants them to go to hell, but prefer against them because they're his enemies. And yet, love them because he still wants to serve them because he causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust. So when you say, I love you, what does it mean? I'm committed to serve you, to bring you closer to the Lord, or I feel really warm and squishy for you right now. Maybe we're being honest. So when it says, love your enemies, here's a guy and he's got a knife and he hates you, and you're like, come here, give me a hug. That's not what it's saying. It's going, the world standard is that if you are not, and it's not, it goes beyond just loving your enemies. I mean, that's the extreme. It goes to basically, the only people I like are those that like me. But if you're awkward or shy, think about what that means. If you're awkward or shy, what that means is, and unless you've got some kind of gift to overcome it, chances are what that means is that you're never going to have friends and they're never going to have friends because nobody takes the first step. Well, that, person's, that person's proud, that person's stuck up, that person's whatever. When truth be told, they may be just as awkward as you are, just as nervous, just as shy as you are. But you're like, well, they never came to me, but you never came to them either. People say, well, nobody came and talked to me. I'm like, well, who did you go to talk to? Well, no one. I'm like, so they were basically following your lead. And Jesus is like, that's not the way we do it. And here's the key is we're not prepared to bring this to close. And I recognize this has gone extraordinarily long, but you can understand why we couldn't stop in the middle of this. Hear me on this. When we look at individuals and we say, that's an acceptable standard. Jesus says, don't the tax collectors do that much? Don't drug dealers out there do the same thing? Don't prostitutes do the same thing or worse? Don't super selfish, horrible killers do the same thing? You ever hear someone and they're like, that guy went and he killed all these people and he did it in horrible ways, but the neighbors are like, oh, he's always nice. He's getting my paper for me. Oh, what a nice guy. What did he do? You know, and you're like, you realize what in the world? So hear me on this. We can never allow the world to set our standards. And Jesus is like, do you really think that's enough because the world does it? And here's my question. How am I different in these areas than the world? We are supposed to be so different that when somebody actually looks at us, they see us as weird. Not like put tinfoil on your head or whatever and uh, walk around avoiding gamma rays because you're afraid of becoming the Hulk. What I'm talking about is actually where they look at your lifestyle and your behavior and they're like, wouldn't it be great... Because we're the only ones who have the Spirit of God inside of us. We should be so radically different that if we were actually doing what God called us to and David started being kind to somebody that was nasty to him, they would go, you must be a Christian. Could you imagine if that was the response? That would be crazy. But that's exactly what Jesus is trying to say here. Like, oh, those churches, they're just like everything else. You're right. 
Because everyone's getting divorced in just like everyone out there. Everyone's looking for vengeance just like they are. They're backtopping and gossiping and starting all these rumors and doing all this stuff and backbiting. And it's, I'm of this group and I'm of that group. And we divided it, which, by the way, Paul tells Timothy is a Christian taken captive to do the will of the enemy. And that's what he says. He goes, well, the church doesn't look any different. He goes, but let me tell you what it really looks like. Real righteousness. He goes, and here's the worst part. This is not how to be great. That's next chapter. This is how to qualify. Isn't that scary? Because he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that, literally goes above and beyond those guys, you're not even going to see the kingdom of heaven. Could you imagine? And he goes, hey, if you just want to look like the world, you're going to end up like the world. Is that what you really want? You want to get on that train? You know where that train terminates. Is that where you want to be? You're like, hey, nobody knew that I was anything else. Chances are because you're not anything else. He goes, but let's see on the other side of it. So let me ask you, in these areas again, as we bring this to close, what about bitterness? Are you in that place where you really feel you have a right to be nasty at someone because of something you heard or saw, or even because someone did something to you? And I'm not trying to belittle anything that's happened to you. I'm just telling you, stop punishing yourself for something you've already suffered for. And go beyond that then. What about that area of sexual impurity? You're like, well, you know, at least I'm not sleeping around. I'm not this, of course, you know. I'm just doing a little. Just a little is still, how much little do you need to be a little pregnant? How much a little do you need to have a little AIDS? Anyone ever, I mean, if you saw an AIDS cell and it was the size of your face, you would avoid it. But you can't see it for a reason. It's just a little. But a little becomes an awful lot really quick. So where am I at with that? Where am I at in regards to the way that I view marriage and commitment? Am I really genuinely committed? Or is it just, you know, oh, well, till death do its part, but man, I wish I was dead now. It's, we made two commitments. My wife and I, when we stood at the altar, one, that we would never get divorced, and two, we would fully enjoy that. And I'm proud to tell you, well, not with a godly pride, I guess, that the first one we've done perfectly with. The second one, those first two years, we had to learn how to do that. But because there was no way out, we worked it out. We threw ourselves at God and said, God, I can't do this. She can't do this. So you're going to have to do it. And by God's grace, as a result of that, miracles have happened. It's been fantastic. We've been married for 25 years. Plus, it's been the 23 greatest years of my life. And she would probably tell you the same for good reason. So where am I at with that? Where am I at with my word? Am I really going to be honest with you or am I going to try to back off and somehow connive to get something from it? Is that really where I want to be? Where am I at with my sense of justice versus mercy? Hey, the world out there is full of justice. Well, their own kind of justice. You know, they only want to be like Judge Dredd. They really don't want to be like, there's nobody out there that's seeking to extend mercy unless it's something's in it for them. So what about you? And in regards to our love, is it a limited love? Or is it an unlimited love? Again, remember, a commitment to serve others, to benefit them. Is that what we're looking at? Let me ask you this. How do you view God? Was his love limited? Do I view God and say, well, he's a limited love for mankind? I will tell you, no, he doesn't. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That if you were willing to believe in him, literally take the trust you have and put it upon him, you would never perish. You'd have everlasting life. It is time for us to become different. World changers. World changers can't look like the world, or how is it going to change? You can't make history by just being part of it. 
So hear me as we pray. First and foremost, have you accepted this gift of God? This gift of sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross and raise again. Have you accepted that gift? Because if you haven't accepted that gift, I'm going to give you the chance to say yes. And then, if you have or not, well, if you have, for those who have, we're going to pray, God, make us different as you called us to be. Living epistles, the living among the dead, obviously different. You know the word for that is? Holy. That's what it is. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I thank you for the patience of my brothers and sisters. I recognize this has gone extraordinarily long, but I do thank you for what you've spoken to us in this time. I know there's so much more that could have been developed, but Lord, I just look at this and I realize that of these stops that are along the way, how easy it is to get off at those. And somehow assume that I'm still having a healthy walk with you. So I'm bitter. And I look at everyone different. I look at people that I once loved and trusted and I can't possibly love and trust them because I'm bitter at everyone now, even though I thought it was just one person or a thing. And you show me that that's not acceptable. So, Lord, as you look into my heart, rip it out. Rip out anything that looks like bitterness. Because I don't want to be a murderer inside. Certainly don't want to be one outside. And I recognize that that comes out by the way that I view others. The way that I would look and call someone worthless. The way that I would look and call them empty. The way that I would look and call them, well, empty of anything of moral character, like a fool. God, don't let that be me. But right now, as we go to prayer, and Lord, as we seek you, if there be anyone in this room who has yet to say yes to the gift of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross for our sins, to pay for all of this, that he would pay the ticket to its final destination. And Lord, in that that if we recognize his death paid the price, his resurrection offers us a brand new life. It's like the, the, the death paid the ticket, but the, but the resurrection got us on the train. And if there be anyone in this room who has not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, payment for their sins and reinventor of their life right now as we pray, I'm going to pray a prayer I ask you to listen. And at the end of it, I ask you to give a confident amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let that be my words today. Let that be my prayer. And here it is. God, I am a sinner. As all men are sinners, I'm a sinner. And I stand guilty before you because of it. But I recognize you so love me that you gave your only begotten son, Jesus the Christ, to die on the cross to pay my price. And as he paid my price, you as a gentleman give me the opportunity to accept that gift. As Scripture promised, he was buried and resurrected on the third day. And I confess Jesus as my ransom, as my Savior, as my payment, and as my Lord. And I say, here I am, I'm yours today. And as I'm yours, have me. And walk me now to that place where I look like you more and more each day. In Jesus' name, if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. And Lord, I pray for every person here that's made the claim of being Christian, whether it's just now or for many years. I pray, Lord, that if there has been anything that has pulled us off the train, where what we'd want is to look more and more and more like you, not like the world, but like you. 
We recognize today that there are stops that are very taunting, very tempting. And there will be those that we have ridden the train with that will get off at them. But Lord, even if I have to ride this train without them, I'm never going to ride it alone because I'll always be with you. And I pray today, Lord, that you forgive us, you cleanse us, redirect us, and make us people determined to take it to the end. As Paul would say, he's fought the fight. He's won the race. He's finished the race. He's kept the faith. So Lord, show us the beauty of staying on that train and make us a church so radically different from the world that when people come in, it isn't that they don't know that they're at church, oh, that they'll know they're at church and that there would be a place where they get a hint of heaven and realize how beautiful it is to be a part of it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, I want to thank you for the honor of your extreme patience and the blessing of being your pastor another week. Now, you guys ready to go eat and do awesome stuff like that? Go be a blessing. Maybe some of you, you have something to get right. Go get right with someone. Go find that person and go get right with them. But please, now go be a blessing.